Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The 2024 Roadshow has begun. The lead starts right now. President Biden leaving the Beltway, taking a State of the Union message to voters in some key battleground states. Will he get cheers or jeers from the American people? Then, more than 12,000 people now have been killed. The death toll from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria continuing to rise to staggering heights as hope fades for finding any survivors left in the rubble. And a passenger's battery catching on fire mid-flight forcing a plane to make an emergency landing and sending four people to the hospital. What you need to know about flying with potentially dangerous electronic devices. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead. The scene after the State of the Union address looks a whole lot like the campaign trail. Right now, President Biden is in the crucial swing state of Wisconsin, where he's talking jobs and the economy echoing a lot of the same messages and themes from last night. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Georgia, another key battleground state, which you might recall the Biden-Harris ticket only won by 11,779 votes. Tomorrow, Biden will head to Florida while Harris visits Minnesota, and their cabinet secretaries are also fanning out across the country. Now, yes, this is part of the blitz we've all come to expect after a president's State of the Union address, but you can also not ignore the White House's choices on where they are sending the president and vice president. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is releasing his own response to Biden's speech. Mike Pence is reiterating his calls for new Republican leadership. And Nikki Haley is teasing her expected 2024 campaign announcement. CNN's Phil Mattingly starts off our coverage today with a closer look at how Biden is testing out his message ahead of an expected re-election campaign announcement. Folks, I hate to disappoint them, but the Biden economic plan is working. President Biden on the road in Wisconsin, the first stop to sell the message he delivered to the nation last night at the State of the Union. We've been sent here to finish the job, in my view. A primetime message of progress and more work to do. I'm glad to see you. I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. Mixed with a lively and off script back and forth with Republican lawmakers. The soul of this nation is strong. Because the backbone of this nation is strong. Because the people of this nation are strong. The state of the union is strong. And culminating with a message of optimism about the path ahead, despite an array of challenges, foreign and domestic. For Biden, a primetime moment to sharpen a steadfast message to working class voters. Folks, my economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten amid the economic upheaval of the past four decades. Too many people have been left behind and treated like they're invisible. And highlight kitchen table issues that appear small on their face. We're going to ban surprise resort fees that hotels charge on your bill. Those fees can cost up to $90 a night at hotels that aren't even resorts. But that advisors view as critical to meeting Americans where they are. At the same time, moving to draw a clear contrast with a new House Republican majority. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. Drawing a visceral response from Republicans in the chamber. Look, 
who have steadfastly claimed entitlement reform, is off the table. Folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. But Republican outrage only growing in the wake of Biden's remarks. People are pissed off. And for the president of the United States to come into the people's house and lie like he did about the economy. And Speaker Kevin McCarthy, seated behind Biden for the first time, holding nothing back. I thought it was probably one of the most partisan State of the Union speeches I've ever heard. Even as in the moment, he attempted to calm members of his own conference. This is what the choices are. Chaos or stability. A split screen that one Biden advisor called a, quote, dream moment for the White House, coming at a critical moment for an 80-year-old president on the verge of one final campaign. I think tonight he showed the energy, the empathy, uh, the hopefulness uh, that a presidential candidate would have. And Jake, if you want any sense of just how much White House officials are girding for that fight over Social Security and Medicare, the president last night made clear he didn't want to name names for Republican lawmakers who had suggested cuts to the programs. That changed today in Wisconsin. The president naming names and providing some receipts of past quotes from people like Senators Rick Scott and Mike Lee. Clearly a battle they want to have and plan to have in the weeks and months ahead, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Wisconsin is expected to once again be the site of a vicious battle in the next election. Biden narrowly carried the state in 2020 by just 20,000 votes. But do voters in America's Dairyland even want to see Biden at the top of the ticket next year? CNN's Jeff Zeleny is there to find out. With any presidency, it's never all good and it's never all bad. Natasha Loos voted for President Biden and has applauded many of his achievements. But with another campaign looming, she admits she's eager for a fresh start. It's always seeming like we're trying to do a lesser of, you know, two evils. And it would be, in my opinion, it would be lovely if we could have somebody who's not in their 70s and 80s running for president. I love that. When we first met Lowe's at her Wisconsin toy shop two years ago, she was grateful Biden had turned the page. Just the tone down of the rhetoric, the not having to be glued to the TV or social media to find out what the latest is going on has been very refreshing. At the halfway mark of his first term, respect for the president runs deeper than a desire for him to run again, even among his admirers. Would you like to see him run again? I'm on the fence. I'm not sure. Um, I'm concerned about his age, not his brilliance or his competence, but certainly his age. Laverta Martin commends Biden for his commitment to diversity, restoring civility, and forgiving student loan debt, but wavers on the prospect of a second term. You can tell the job has worn him down a little bit, which is where my concern is with him running again. Um, but he's still there. That spark, that fire, that honest gentleman, he is still there. Inside his Milwaukee brewery, Tim Eichinger said inflation and high interest rates have taken a toll, but he doesn't blame Biden and hopes he runs again. If I was him sitting in, I'd say, like, hell yeah, I'm going to do this again. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I finally have got my chance. Uh, things are moving forward. As the president came to Wisconsin to sell his State of the Union message, Jonathan Clark worked a few miles away at a custom printing shop. He still remembers Biden's words from the last campaign. Look, I view myself as a bridge, not as anything else. There's an entire generation of leaders you saw stand behind me. Back when Clark viewed him as the right man for the job. While he praised Biden's infrastructure law and other points of success, he said 2024 should be a new moment. 
if he's likely to run for re-election, do you think he should? Uh, no. I think when he, uh, when he ran for office last time, um, it was talked about being, being a one-term thing, and I know he didn't commit to that, um, but I think a lot of people uh, that support the party were, were hoping uh, that would be the case. Now, there is deep admiration for President Biden among his admirers. That comes through in one conversation after another. But there are also many questions, some pointed, some private, about whether he should indeed run for re-election two years from now. He was the man for the moment, of course, three years ago. The question is, with that Republican primary field, very unsettled and uncertain, will he be the right man for that moment? That, of course, is unknowable now. But for now, the president clearly selling his message on the road here in Wisconsin today, in Florida tomorrow, not only his agenda, but making the case for why he still has it and he's likely to run again. Jake? All right, Jeff Zeleny in Madison, Wisconsin for us. Thanks so much. CNN's Caitlin Collins is here to discuss. Caitlin, uh, we should note, obviously, uh, President Biden, he barely won Wisconsin in 2020. And we just heard supporters in the state saying maybe he shouldn't run in 2024 and you know, anecdotes are one thing, but that's actually reflective of polling. Um, a lot of Democrats don't want him to run. He still is expected to run for re-election, though? He's definitely still expected to run. Someone said the word if to me last night, and I said if. This is a person who works for Biden. They said when. He is going to announce whether that's March, April. We'll see. They don't feel as they're in much of a hurry to announce the re-election as they did, you know, three months ago. Uh, he is still going to run. And now you're hearing from Democrats on Capitol Hill who say, that speech last night is why he is going to be running. You saw how energized he was, pushing back on Republicans, kind of relishing that back and forth with them. They say that's what it's going to look like on the campaign trail. But they are aware that voters feel the way that what you just heard from Jonathan there to Jeff Zeleny. And so what they say they're focused on is why Biden's going to Wisconsin today, why he's in Florida tomorrow. He is making all these stops to talk about what he's accomplished because they're seeing that voters are not feeling it like they hoped they would be. So no question last night uh, he was able to project strength and vigor in a way that was perhaps unexpected. And, and that was, to a large degree, an in-kind contribution from the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who heckled him, uh, you know, like she was uh, at, a, at, a, at a pro wrestling game, but pro wrestling match. But I guess one question I have is his campaigning. He ran in 2020. It was still during covid he was able to do a lot of non-events or just like standing in a yard with three people behind him. Um, the first stop we saw from him today is exactly what we've come to expect, a speech in front of a union crowd about creating jobs. But it, is he ready for the vigors of a presidential election campaign where he's expected to do three or four of those a day? It's brutal. The campaign is awful. It's brutal Everyone, to cover for people in their 20s, much less a man who's 80. Who aren't giving speeches right. at every stop and shaking all these people's hands. It's really tough. Obviously, Biden knows it well. He's no stranger to politics. But you're right. His campaign for president in 2020 is not what this one is going to look like. You're going to have to be on the road, especially with this aggressive Republican field that we're going to see. That's likely why Wisconsin was his first stop, because he did struggle there. You know, he did win, but it wasn't, you know, 20, this sweeping votes. victory. Yeah. And look at the polls of people who don't have college degrees. They're not as hot on Biden as those with college degrees. I think that's why that message last night was so economic focused. It wasn't on the cultural issues that Republicans have used to bring in those working class voters. It was much more focused on your pocketbook. We'll see how effective that is. But that is a message he's got to sell to win over those working class, a lot of them white voters, a lot of them without college degrees, to help him win that back to the Democratic Party. 
but also the campaign itself. People around Biden will acknowledge it's going to be brutal. And I think you'll see a lot of surrogates out there for him as well. All right, Caitlin Collins, good to see you. Thanks so much. Coming up, did they give lawmakers something to tweet about? Next, the congressional hearing on Twitter and political bias. That had some surprises. Then Buffalo Bill star Damar Hamlin is at the Super Bowl talking about his future plans after his miraculous recovery. Plus, NFL commissioner Roger Goodell has a reason why concussions have risen just this season. In our tech lead now, former Twitter executives testified on Capitol Hill today acknowledging mistakes were made in the company's handling of that October 2020 New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop. They admitted that they erred and that Twitter executives should not have suppressed that story. But the former executives denied that the story had been suppressed because they were taking orders from the FBI. This was the first high-profile hearing for the newly named House Oversight and Accountability Committee investigating possible censorship by Twitter pushed by the government in the weeks before the 2020 presidential election. CNN's Sarah Murray has the big moments. For House Republicans, a high-profile kickoff into the investigation into the president's son and Twitter. The Hunter Biden laptop story was published on Wednesday. Twitter did not acknowledge a mistake for at least 24 hours. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee making the still unproven case that Twitter temporarily suppressed a story about Hunter Biden's laptop ahead of the 2020 election at the behest of the federal government. America witnessed a coordinated campaign by social media companies, mainstream news and the intelligence community to suppress and delegitimize the existence of Hunter Biden's laptop and its contents. But a trio of former Twitter officials testifying, including former Deputy Counsel James Baker, pushed back on that narrative. I'm aware of no unlawful collusion with or direction from any government agency or political campaign on how Twitter should have handled the Hunter Biden laptop situation. The former executives also expressed regret over temporarily suppressing the Hunter Biden story. I believe Twitter erred in this case because we wanted to avoid repeating the mistakes of 2016. The hearing highlighting the catch-22 for social media platforms. After facing criticism for failing to crack down on foreign governments spreading disinformation in 2016, tech companies are back in the hot seat as Republicans accuse them of censorship. Despite the bombastic allegations from Republicans... I think you guys got played by the FBI. Twitter was basically a subsidiary of the FBI. The Twitter officials undercut the GOP's claims. I don't recall speaking to the FBI at all about the Hunter Biden matter. While Democrats slammed the premise of Wednesday's hearing. It's just an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. House Oversight Chair James Comer making clear this is just the beginning. I can assure you this committee will succeed in holding the Bidens accountable. So much of the evidence of wrongdoing from this family is located in that hard drive that you all led the American people to believe was Russian disinformation. Now, despite what we've heard about James Comer's private conversations with Elon Musk in the run-up to this hearing, we didn't hear a lot of bombshells with new information from Twitter. But we did get an indication from the Democratic witness, a former Twitter employee, that the Trump White House actually reached out to Twitter at one point, asking them to pull down a tweet from celebrity Chrissy Teigen when Teigen unleashed an expletive-laden rant against the former president. Hmm. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Let's bring in Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, who's on the Oversight and Accountability Committee that held today's hearing. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Today you said that Twitter 
had acted as if it were a subsidiary of the FBI. Now, I agree Twitter should not have suppressed that New York Post story about the laptop, but where's the evidence that they did it because the FBI told them to do so? Uh, obviously, at the time, the FBI was under the leadership of Trump's appointed director, Christopher Wray, and Trump was the president. Right. I mean, that's what this, why this is so important. Um, this kind of issue, censorship by the federal government, and it wasn't just the FBI. There were other federal agencies. But when Elon Musk released the Twitter files, that allowed folks all around the world to see what was going on and to see different agencies reaching out and urging Twitter and other social media companies, I would gather, based on the comments of the CEO of Facebook last year, to censor certain pieces of information. And one of the things that I talked about today, I had less focus on the laptop and more about COVID-19 because there were certain doctors and epidemiologists you know, that were educated at Harvard and Stanford that had a slightly different take on immunity and vaccination. And those voices were silenced. They were censured. They were blacklisted and shadow banned. And regardless if you're Republican or Democrat, this is a very slippery slope when it's the federal government coming after you vis-a-vis a, a private company. Um, and even I brought up Rokana today, someone that I work with across the aisle. He even uh, announced concerns during all of this when the censorship was happening a couple of years ago, his concerns about the First Amendment and protecting it. And I wanted to also praise him for his courage to stand up and say those things. So I guess I, I hear what you're saying, but mm-hmm. if the federal government feels as though somebody with a big platform is sharing health information that's wrong and can hurt people, um, do they, should they never reach out to a social media company and say, we don't think, let's, let's take an extreme example, okay? Not, not what you were just talking about, but yeah. uh, Dr. Smith is saying that the cure for COVID is to, is to, is to drink bleach. Um, should they not voice a concern? I mean, I guess the question is, where do you draw the line, right? Right. Well, one of the charts that, one of the tweets that was censured by Twitter, and I, I showed it today in the hearing, was an actual chart from the CDC with real information from the government, and that user only had 18,000 followers, and that, that was shadow banned. And so these are real researchers, medical researchers, epidemiologists, and doctors. It's not just in theory. If Dr. Smith told you to inject bleach, I'm certain the state that Dr. Smith was licensed in, would, he would lose his medical license because that's sort of outrageous and radical. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about doctors and researchers who were silenced, and they were even using our own government data, which, according to Twitter standards, is accurate. And so that's where I think that where we need to take a closer look at and why it's really important to have this conversation. And it shouldn't be a partisan conversation. As you know, COVID-19 doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat. No, and I, yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, it's interesting. I wondered what you thought of when your colleague, um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York, she, she argued that Twitter's biases do seem to go both ways. And she used an example of a 2019 Trump tweet uh, when he told four uh, congresswomen of color um, to go back where they came from. He tweeted, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places where they came from. And and AOC asked Twitter how they handled that tweet in 2019. I want to play a little bit from that uh, part of the hearing. At the time, Twitter's policy included a specific example when it came to banned abuse uh, against immigrants as they specifically included the phrase, go back to your country or or go back to where you came from, correct? Yes, that was specifically included in the content moderation guidance as an example. You brought this up to the vice president of trust and safety, Del Harvey, correct? I did, yes. And she overrode your assessment, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, And something interesting happened after she overrode your assessment. A day or two later, Twitter seemed to have changed their policies, didn't they? 
Yes, that trope, go back to where you came from, was removed from the content moderation guidance as an example. So Twitter changed their own policy after the president violated it um, in order to potentially accommodate his tweet? Yes. So what do you say to a constituent who, who watched the hearing and says, it's important that we're having this conversation, it's a good thing that we are, but it does seem like these are a bunch of folks over at Twitter and social media companies maybe in over their heads, making up the rules as they go along, Sometimes it benefits Democrats, sometimes conservatives. What, what, what do you say? Well, I think, I think that's fair. And I think it's really important when there's a standard, and we're talking about the First Amendment, number one, as a, as a federal government, my point was today, we shouldn't be censoring people. Even if we don't like that speech, we should be fighting to protect that speech, even if we dislike it. That's part of the First Amendment and how our country was founded on. But if a private company or public company decides this is the standard, then they should treat both sides, uh, Republicans and Democrats, treat them all to the same and equal standard. It shouldn't be heavily weighted on one side or the other. And that's something that I've been saying for a long time. And, and I hope that that's what comes out of the hearing today, too. I want to ask you about last night because Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders delivered the Republican response. Uh, she tried to draw a sharp contrast to the message that President Biden delivered. Uh, here's a little clip. The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. So help me out with this, if you would. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, George Santos, are they on the normal side or the crazy side, according to your party? Well, I've, I've called for George Santos to resign a number of times since we found out about all of the lies that he told to get elected and uh, possible campaign finance issues, and hopefully those are being investigated uh, by both ethics and uh, the FEC right now. But it is, it is an issue. They're the far right and the far left, and I've been saying this for a long time, as someone who gets a lot of threats in their life, I, I see it from both sides. Um, Jake, I've had three threats on my life in the first four weeks of this year, and I get them from both sides of the aisle. And so I don't see it in the same way lens. Um, I see this as being an issue about the American people. And I believe that there are a lot of people who've left the Republican Party and left the Democrat Party because they, they feel like their voices aren't being represented. And, and both sides of the aisle are largely missing the fact that independents are outnumbering both sides. And I see it in my district. Independents outnumber Republicans um, in the first congressional district in South Carolina. And those people feel like their voices are missing because of some of the fringe elements that we see on both sides of the aisle. And uh, those that live in swing districts and purple districts like mine, we really understand what's going on on the ground. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mesa, South Carolina, thank you so much. Good to have you. Thank you, Jake. Out of time for miracles as the death toll from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria soars above 12,000. Rescuers are still coming through rubble, hoping to find survivors. We're at the epicenter next. Topping our world lead today, Monday's 7.8 magnitude earthquake in Turkey and Syria is quickly becoming one of the world's worst natural disasters in a decade with more than 12,000 dead. But amid the devastation, there are small glimmers of hope, including this miracle escape from the rubble. Six people, include, including one child, pulled out alive 60 hours after the quake. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is right next to the epicenter, where some families have not been so lucky. And we want to warn viewers, you may find some of these images disturbing. It is hard to imagine how this rubble gave anyone hope. Yet for 50 or so hours after the quake... It almost did. And when it stopped, when the chances of surviving ebbed, the bodies so near the epicentre here kept coming. The paralysis of grief. 
when these two parents see their eight-year-old daughter's red hair blood-stained. Another four-year-old girl with no parents here to bury her. Another father simply walking behind. There's been constant, intense activity, desperately trying to save lives, but we are sadly now into the window where so many of the ambulances that arrive will likely be taking away people who've perished. Up high, hope is strongest, digging furiously by hand here. On the other side of the rubble, medics rushed forward, growing fury at how nothing here came sooner. The stretchers here too late return empty. Another body pulled out of a Syrian refugee in his 40s as the excavations gain pace. An audience of agony watches, waits. A hospital volunteer told us over 300 bodies here are unclaimed in the morgue. The numbers rising fast along with tempers. It is chaos, and whether any government could have moved faster was the question dogging Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan when he flew into town briefly. This stadium suddenly home to possibly thousands, for who knows how long. Many refugees from Syria now perhaps losing their homes for the third time. That's nearly as many years as some have been alive. They have nothing but the state's generosity to rely on, which for now means 12 people in this tent. For now, the question is what they could have done to not arrive for so many entombed here too late. Now, Jake, the activity we saw during the day, faster paced, designed to get bodies out, it seemed, that already perished. It's slowing down, still some digging. Questions, though, continue to arise from people here about the government response, its speed. Yes, the weather was appalling on the first day, and that's even been accepted by the president here as having been a contributing factor. But another part, really, of how Turkey functions, there have been some reliable reports that Twitter, uh, which has been a source of criticism of the government's response, has in fact been blocked or slowed down in parts of Turkey. So anger here may well grow. And the broader problem, Jake, of what do the thousands, the tens of thousands of people here whose homes now look like this. What are they going to do in these freezing nights right now and in the weeks and months ahead? Tents simply won't be enough. Jake? All right, CNN's Nick Payton Walsh near the epicenter in Turkey. Thank you so much. If you're looking for ways to help the victims of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, you can go to cnn.com impact to learn more. Also in today's world, lead a step towards justice for families of victims of the Lockerbie terror attacks a Libyan man accused of making the bomb that took down Pan Am Flight 103 
pleaded not guilty in a federal court here in Washington, D.C. today. In December 1988, that plane crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland, shortly after taking off from London on its way to New York. When a bomb detonated in the cargo area, 270 passengers and crew members were killed, including 190 Americans, 35 of whom were Syracuse University students returning from a semester abroad. Abu Ajila Mohammed Masood Al-Maremi faces three charges, including destruction of an aircraft resulting in death. He has another hearing in two weeks. He faces life in prison if convicted. Coming up, Mike Pence says it's time for new leadership in the Republican Party. So why hasn't he announced a 2024 challenge to Donald Trump yet? One of his closest former advisors is here live next. In our politics lead, the FBI search for classified documents at former Vice President Mike Pence's home could happen as soon as this week, according to sources familiar with the matter. This comes uh, as President Biden and former President Trump and Vice President Pence face multiple investigations for their handling of classified documents. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed special counsels to investigate Biden and Trump. He is currently conducting a review of Pence's actions. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers are forging ahead with their own investigations. The House Oversight and Judiciary Committees are probing Biden's handling of classified documents. House Oversight Chairman James Comer says his committee's investigation will also include Pence, but not Trump, he says. Joining us now is Mark Short. He's the former chief of staff for former Vice President uh, Mike Pence. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. So CNN is hearing that the FBI search of Pence's home could be as soon as this week. Uh, have you heard of a date from the, for the search? And could it include a search of Pence's think tank office as well, do you think? Well, Jake, I think uh, to remind your viewers, it was a couple weeks ago in light of all the news happening with Joe Biden's house that the former right. Vice President Pence asked counsel to come review, self-disclosed the discovery of, of some documents that were caught up in the boxes to the National Archives. It's better safe than sorry. See if there's anything there. Absolutely. And, and to your, your lead, and I'm not aware of any investigation that's been announced into Mike Pence. I'm aware of the investigations into Trump and Biden. But as far as looking at the additional documents, I think that uh, uh, the vice president's asked for full compliance, and there's been conversations about a consensual search uh, to be conducted. And I presume that's not too far off into the future. I do think we have concerns, though, about what we perceive as a double standard and growing one there. How's the double? What's the double standard? Well, the, the process, as explained when you discover documents, is you alert the National Archives, which happened immediately. And the archives explained, we will come to the home, we collect the materials, bring them back to Washington, D.C. We, as the archives, review them, determine if there's anything classified. If something is classified, then we alert DOJ. That's what happened with President Biden. In Vice President Pence's case, the FBI inserted themselves that very day and said, we're coming tonight when Vice President Pence was at the March for Life here in Washington, D.C., to collect the documents, which is not the way they handled Biden. They came that very same day. And with Joe Biden, it actually was 79 days after the announcement of discovery before they actually went to his home. And, you know, we continue to see repeated leaks in the Department of Justice about law enforcement officials confirming a search that's pending. That's not the way it happened in Joe Biden's house either. It was there was no announcement of a search of his home until much later. They did until after the fact. Right. They did announce the beach house. But, you know, Mike Pence doesn't have multiple homes. His family wasn't earning money from Ukraine or Russia when he was serving as vice president. They could afford multiple homes for them to search in. Right. So when the FBI searched Biden's home, the president's legal team said they gave the Justice Department full access. They can look at anything they want. Um, will Vice President Pence do the same? He's made that clear. He's already said yes. that, that that's okay. the case. Yeah. Um, we also know that Pence is, of course, uh, weighing a presidential run in 2024. Um, do you think these investigations will factor into that at all, that decision? 
And when might he make a decision? I don't think he hears concern about that when he travels across the country. I think he hears a lot of encouragement from people as he travels. And uh, I, I don't anticipate uh, him making any imminent announcement, Jake. I think he's in, in continuing to have conversations with his family and getting support from the American people about what decision he faces. And I think, you know, the, the trajectory of most candidates who get in early, it seems, in Republican primaries doesn't usually fare too well. So I think that there's a, there's a benefit for him uh, waiting until later in this process. Um, what did you think of the State of the Union address last night? Well, Jake, I felt like I, probably for President Biden, it helped shore up his support with the Democrat Party. There's been a lot of announced, you know, elected officials who have been reluctant to announce their support for him for 24. But I think he probably solidified support. But I, I'm also disappointed that there wasn't a bigger conversation about the biggest issues facing our country. I think when you look at national security, and I think the Biden administration had their Sputnik moment last week, there wasn't a lot of conversation about what we're going to do to confront China. There wasn't really a ton of conversation about what we're going to do to fix the border crisis. And I think when it comes to the spending crisis, I can't really don't think either party is really addressing honestly with the American people the crisis we face. How so? Well, the reality is we're now at $32 trillion in debt, 120% debt to GDP. The last time our country ever reached 100% was in World War II, when you knew that you would come out of the war with, in essence, the economy growing and a drawdown in defense spending. There's no such event on the horizon for us right now like that. And Jake, when we talk about the entitlement spending and everybody's saying we're not going to touch it, the reality is Joe Biden himself in Senate speeches talked about how we need to have, quote, everybody in the barrel, all programs to be considered. Right. That's what his position when he was in the Senate. And we're all sitting here in this position saying we've all been demagogued about cuts to Social Security and Medicare. But the reality is that if we have, a, we have basically a little over $6 trillion in federal spending right now, $4.5 trillion is mandatory spending. Four and a half trillion. Right. That's Those like are saying, the entitlement spend, like spending, saying, you, Medicare. You know, yeah. If you had four slices of pizza... You can say, well, we're only going to discuss this one piece, and we're going to do right now on the debt ceiling a 2% cut. It's like it's such a tiny fraction. It's not really material. But you're saying Democrats and Republicans are, yeah, being, and we, we not, all, are not being straight. We all you. have to have an adult conversation about where we're going. The reality is that Medicare is going to reach the point in only five years, in 2028, in which there are going to be mandatory cuts to Medicare. Social Security is only a couple years behind that. We're not being honest with the American people about the cuts they're going to face if we do nothing. All we're simply saying is saying none neither party's gonna touch them. Yeah. Mark Short, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Good to see you. Jake, thanks for having me. Coming up, the air scare when a battery caught fire on a United Airlines flight sending four people to the hospital. Stay with us. In our national lead now, renewed safety concerns about certain batteries in electronics after a frightening situation on a United Airlines flight yesterday. An external battery from a device caught fire shortly after takeoff, and that led to an emergency landing and four people sent to the hospital. CNN's Gabe Cohen is on the case for us. Gabe, what new information are you learning about this incident? Well, Jake, we've obtained air traffic audio of the moment the pilot on that United flight actually radioed in that emergency, which we now know was just after takeoff from San Diego before they turned that plane around and returned to the airport. Take a listen. We're declaring emergency. We have a uh, laptop on fire in the aircraft. We need to return. Sorry, what do you have on board? You said. Yeah, we have a laptop on fire in the back. We need to return to the airport right now. The uh, laptop is contained. The fire is out, and it's in the lab. And we just need to uh, check on the thermal uh, condition of the brakes so we can uh, maybe roll off and get over the uh, gate so they can get on the airplane and get this thing off. 
And United is now telling us it turned out not to be a laptop. It was some sort of external battery. It caught fire inside a seat back pocket in first class. And the flight crew, United says, acted quickly. They followed their training and they got that battery into a thermal containment bag or a fire bag, which they carry on flights just for emergencies like this. Uh, Now, two passengers were evaluated by first responders at the scene and four flight attendants were taken to the hospital. But Jake, it was uh, just as a precaution uh, to check for potential smoke inhalation. They have since been released. Gabe, do we know if this was a lithium battery, which the FAA has raised concerns about many times before? Yeah, it's a question we've asked. The FAA says they're still investigating, but aviation experts I've spoken with tell me the early information would point to that. Lithium batteries, as we know, have been known to to smoke in some cases, even catch fire. And the FAA says last year there were 57 incidents involving those batteries on flights. And that's why the FAA has put in some pretty strict rules for them. Passengers have to turn off devices that use those batteries, like laptops, if they're going to put them in checked luggage. And then spare batteries or or power banks, external batteries, have to actually be carried on the flight. They are not allowed in checked luggage. And it's so that crews can deal with an incident like the one we saw, a sudden fire, rather than having it happen in cargo. Uh, I asked one of our aviation experts about that. Take a listen. If, if the battery started to cook off in the, uh, in the cargo hold, the results could have been catastrophic. I think uh, passengers don't take the threat uh, that these batteries can pose seriously enough. But it- But, Jake, it's obviously something the FAA is very concerned about. Okay, we're learning new details about the massive Southwest Airlines Christmas travel uh, meltdown. Um, Internal messages. What do we know about it? Well, so ahead of a hearing on Capitol Hill tomorrow about that Christmas meltdown, CNN has obtained testimony from the Southwest Pilots Union that gives us a really alarming look at just the extent of the airline's breakdown over Christmas. They say this was an operation held together by quote, duct tape. And as evidence, they include a message that was sent to a cockpit computer from the airline's dispatchers asking the pilots to identify themselves because it appears the airline didn't actually know who was on board that flight. And the message ends, quote, it's a mess down here. Uh, Now, the airline canceled more than 16,000 flights during that chaos, as we know. And Southwest, an official with them, uh, with the airline, is going to testify tomorrow. Uh, We've learned he's going to apologize. They have handed out refunds, but we expect some pointed questions during that hearing. All right, Gabe Cohen, great reporting. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, details in a newly obtained affidavit. One of the officers charged in the Tyree Nichols death claims he actually tried to help Nichols. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Topper. This hour, maybe Pierre Delecto needs to make a return to Twitter. Republican Congressman George Santos now says Senator Mitt Romney, quote, did not act very Mormon at the State of the Union address. Plus, trying to deflate China's spy program, U.S. officials now say the Chinese government's spy balloon is just one part of a worldwide surveillance effort meant to gather intelligence on other countries' military capabilities. And leading this hour, three days after that deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria, the death toll stands at now at more than 12,000, and that number is only expected to rise. Amid all the horror and devastation, Turkey's government has restricted access to Twitter after 18 people were detained for making so-called provocative posts about the quake. Some Turkish journalists are denouncing the restrictions, claiming rescue teams 
have been using Twitter to communicate. CNN's Jamana Karache is in Adana, Turkey, as the golden period for finding survivors, typically one to three days, rapidly comes to a close. A five-year-old emerges from underneath the rubble in Turkey's hard-hit Hatay, one of the youngest of thousands of lives saved. But for too many, it was too late. In the town of Kirkhan, they mourn one of the many who've not made it out alive. With the death toll rising by the hour, this is a race against time. How many are buried under the wreckage of this massive quake zone, no one really knows. Estimates in the tens of thousands. Here in Adana, search and rescue crews work tirelessly around the clock, digging through what used to be a 14-story residential building where families lay asleep when the monstrous earthquake hit. Survivors have gathered at the site of the rescue mission. There's shelter and hot meals. And in the bitter cold, they huddle around these fires, everyone with a story of the horror they've survived. The shock, the trauma, the pain visible on every face. Parents doing what they can to try and make their little ones forget. Many here are anxiously awaiting news of their loved ones and friends buried under what's left of their homes. Get down, they're asking us to get down, and we believe this is because they're scanning the building, the wreckage. This is a very, very careful and delicate operation that's going on to try and see if they can locate any survivors because so far they haven't been able to. No survivors yet, only lifeless bodies pulled. It's been three days. Why can't they get my son out, this father wails. As night falls, the rest of the family wait desperately for any news of 25-year-old Sirt. They've been out here for three long nights. It's so, so, so bad because uh, all is night. Uh, we are thinking my family, my relative uh, things, uh, uh, um, my cousins, her, my cousins dead. He's crying so much. He's crying so much. He he's uh, wonder her his son. Your cousin's dad. Uh, we yeah, saw him earlier. Yeah. He was he was crying. He yes, was crying. Yes, earlier. we are all is crying, crying. That that's why I don't know what to say. All is we should we should pray to God. And that is all they and countless others can do right now. And Jake, as search and rescue operations like this one are continuing across the country tonight, the Turkish government is coming uh, under fire for restricting Twitter. This is not unusual. The government has done this in the past following attacks and explosions. They claim it is to uh, fight misinformation. But uh, critics of the government and uh, a lot of people who have been involved in the search and rescue effort in the country, volunteers and campaigners, are saying this is not about the uh, ongoing battle for freedom of speech in the country. This is about the fact that Twitter has been an important tool that has been used by volunteers to mobilize, to organize aid deliveries, and to direct uh, search and rescue crews to where they are needed the most, Jake. All right, CNN's Jamana Karache in Adana, Turkey. Thank you so much. Let's bring in the spokesperson for UNICEF, uh, Joe English. Uh, Joe, thanks for joining us. Some Syrian refugees who fled to Turkey during the war are once again experiencing hardship and homelessness. This, this has to be especially hard on the, on the children. What's UNICEF's top priority for the kids right now? 
I mean, Jay, can you even begin to imagine, you know, some of these kids, imagine a 12 year old, all they've ever known is war. You know, many families that we speak to in northwest Syria have been displaced multiple times. And we're not just talking once or twice, but five, six, seven times, you know, and they've been through what's been, you know, remarkably one of the worst years yet of the war. You know, humanitarian needs in Syria are higher than they've ever been. And now this. You know, imagine being a parent four o'clock in the morning and you feel those shakes and, you know, adrenaline kicks in. You're trying to find your kids, trying to get them to some kind of safety. Those who are lucky were able to escape maybe with the clothes on their back, a blanket. But so many others, as we've seen from from the powerful reporting, have not been so lucky. And so the needs are huge. You know, we're, we need to get in with with the basics, keeping families warm overnight when temperatures are dropping below zero providing safe drinking water to prevent disease outbreaks, and then psychosocial support, which is going to be a huge priority in the days ahead. Turning to Syria specifically, uh, the earthquake comes during this drawn-out civil war. It's been going on for years and years, compounded by winter weather, a cholera outbreak. A World Health Organization official says this is a, quote, large, unfolding, huge-scale disaster. How is UNICEF scaling up for not just the short term, but the long haul in these incredibly hard hit areas. Yeah, you know, honestly, it's a disaster on a disaster. You know, when you speak to when I speak to my colleagues on the ground and they speak to families, you know, they have been through so much already, you know, and, and it's hard not to lose hope when you when you live within these these kind of situations. But by providing this this care and this support and I've seen it, I've you know, I've seen it in Syria. I've seen it in Ukraine. I've seen it around the world when you can provide kids with safe spaces to play and to you know, be a child again, to, to be able to be there, be safe, speak to a, a dedicated psychosocial specialist, begin to play with you know, crayons and toys, unpack what they've been through. It can make a difference. You know, getting kids back into school, that can make a difference. And these are the things which in the in days, weeks, months ahead are going to be critical. But, you know, the reality is, is if you look at a city like Aleppo, they have not recovered from from 12 years of war, nowhere near. And so now this it's going to be a long road ahead to recovery. Joe English with UNICEF, which if you can afford to help, always would welcome a donation if you're watching and you have the means. Joe English, thank you so much. For other ways so much, to help the victims of the earthquake, you can go to cnn.com slash impact. Also in our world lead, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has just arrived in France on the second leg of a consequential, previously unannounced trip today. Zelensky first stopped in the UK. He met with the prime minister. He met with King Charles and he met with Ukrainian troops who are training with the British military. Now Zelensky is scheduled to meet with the leaders of France and Germany in Paris. The British today also announced that that government will expand training to Ukrainian fighter pilots, though pilots need jets, of course, which the UK and other allies have so far refused to send to Ukraine. CNN's Fred Plaikin explains why today's visit is raising hopes for a shift in attitude as Russia's brutal onslaught is unrelenting. Ukrainian towns getting decimated by Russian firepower every day. This is Marinka in the east of the country, almost completely reduced to rubble. Around Bakhmut, combat at close quarters as Ukrainian troops try to prevent Russian fighters of the Wagner private military company from encircling the city. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin, so confident in his own private air force, he took to the skies and challenged Ukraine's president to a dogfight. Tomorrow, I'm boarding a MiG-29, he said. If you desire, we'll meet in the sky. Do the speaker. 
But Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is in Europe, visiting the UK's parliament, pleading for Western combat jets. In Britain, the king is a, a near force pilot. And in Ukraine today, every air force pilot is a king. Despite being much smaller and older than Moscow's air force, the Ukrainians are still very much in the fight in the skies. But they're losing planes and having trouble maintaining their Soviet fleet. Even a small number of Western fighters would make a big difference, says Ukraine's Air Force spokesman. We can start with a few squadrons, he says, each with 12 jets. If we have one to two or more squadrons, it would be the first step for our pilots to transition. They can be in formation and perform combat missions on different directions. The U.S. has given the Ukrainians some air-launched anti-radiation missiles called HARM. But Kiev says those, too, would work much better if launched from Western jets. The HARM missiles aren't as efficient as if they were used from American or other Allied aircraft, the spokesman says. Their functionality is restricted. The range is shorter, making the efficiency lower. Ukrainian officials say they want U.S.-made F-16s. So far, President Biden has ruled out giving Kiev combat aircraft. But the U.K. says it will soon start training Ukrainian pilots. And Ukrainian officials tell CNN they're confident they'll get jets, just like eventually they got the main battle tanks they requested. We'd like help as soon as possible, like yesterday, he says. And our partners say it will come tomorrow. And the space between yesterday and tomorrow is very important to us. And Ukraine civilians remain in the crosshairs of Russia's cannons, missiles and jets, while Kiev hopes for more Western support to start beating them back. And of course, Jake, the Ukrainians understand that if Western nations like the U.S. are going to give them jets, it's going to take quite a while for something like that to be put in place and for them to be able to actually use those jets here in the uh, battlefronts. But of course, there's also more imminent needs that the Ukrainians have as well. And something President Volodymyr Zelensky talked about when he was in the United Kingdom, he said... Armored vehicles, definitely a high priority, and also longer distance missiles and rockets to hit Russian supply lines because the Ukrainians understand there's probably a Russian offensive coming. They believe the next couple of months are going to be extremely brutal in the east of this country, Jake. All right, Fred Plykin in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, balloons of different sizes and capabilities. The Pentagon releasing even more details about the Chinese government's floating spy program. Plus, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell says... Philadelphia Eagles fans are very good at one thing. Hmm, I'm interested to hear what that is. That's next. And we're back with our world lead. A Chinese surveillance program is ballooning into a bigger deal. The Pentagon confirming earlier today it has, quote, 100%, 100% certainty that China's surveillance balloon was not being used for civilian purposes. U.S. intelligence officials say... The spy balloon that floated across America last week is just one in a fleet. CNN's Kylie Atwood is at the State Department for us. Kylie, how extensive is this alleged surveillance program? 
It's quite extensive, Jake. So U.S. officials believe that it is run by the Chinese military, and they don't know the full extent of this program yet. But what they do know at this point is that in recent years, there were more than two dozen of these missions that crossed over five continents. And we heard that reiterated from the Secretary of State today, saying that there are five continents that these balloons have passed over in recent years. He said that there would be more information to come from the United States on this. We also heard from the Pentagon that it's not one size fits all with these surveillance balloons, that they can have uh, different sizes, that some of them can have different capabilities. What the United States government is trying to do is figure out everything that they can about the balloon that was over the United States just you know last week and was taken down off the coast of South Carolina. That uh, Those operations are still underway. They're gathering those pieces. They're taking them to a government lab. There are FBI experts that are going through and trying to figure out what it was able to collect. But then they're also trying to cast a broader net and figure out what the extent of this Chinese surveillance program looks like. We heard from the NATO Secretary General today saying that Chinese surveillance, even in Europe, has picked up and there is a need to increase defenses. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Thanks so much with us now. Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois. He's a top Democrat on the brand new bipartisan select committee on China. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. Um, So we're not dealing with a lone surveillance balloon here, according to U.S. officials. They say it's part of an extensive surveillance program. Uh, Can you confirm that? Is there evidence to prove that? And how might that change your committee's approach to this incident? Well, we're actually receiving a classified briefing tomorrow morning about this program, so uh, I'm not really in a position to confirm. But what we do know is that this was not a weather balloon. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, this was clearly a surveillance balloon. It was not small payload. It was maybe 2,000 pounds of payload. Uh, so far, the Pentagon has reported in published reports. So uh, this, this is quite a bit of equipment. So obviously the United States conducts surveillance all over the world on our adversaries, probably even on our allies. Um, Is this different than what the United States government does? Well, let me just put it this way. I think a a brazen violation of someone's airspace uh, is not a common occurrence. Um, And certainly not days before they invite your secretary of state to come and visit Beijing uh, or your nation's capital. I think that this is Uh, One of those situations, Jake, where either one of two things are happening and we're trying to uh, figure out what's actually happening uh, based on our latest intelligence, but, you know, either Chairman Xi and the higher um, echelon folks uh, in the foreign ministry knew about what, what was going on with regard to this balloon and still they decided to invite Uh, Secretary Blinken, which really questions the sincerity of their overtures and whether there's a substantive change in their policy, or uh, within the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the left hand and the right hand didn't know what each other was doing. We just don't know the answers to that. Speaking of not knowing, um, the fact that other balloons had previously crossed into U.S. airspace and were undetected at the time is concerning. Take a listen to the commander of U.S. Northern Command. I will tell you that uh, we did not detect those threats, Um, and that's a domain awareness gap that we have to figure out. But I don't want to go into further detail. Is your committee going to push for more details uh, on this so-called awareness gap? Uh, Yes, I think we're going to be asking a lot of searching questions. I think at this point we're we're trying to 
um, you know, basically uh, ask, you know, how did this happen? When did we know this happened? Has this happened in the past and how do we know it happened in the past? Um, these are all the types of questions that uh, we'll be asking at these classified briefings. An elite team from the FBI is right now analyzing pieces of the wreckage. Um, what intelligence are you hoping to learn from their analysis? Gosh, this could be a goldmine of information in terms of assessing their intelligence capabilities. Um, you know, what types of cameras do they have? What types of um, listening devices do they have? Um, you know, how quickly can they transmit that information and at what rate uh, can they transmit it to um, their, uh, home, their home ship or mothership or back to Beijing? Um, these are important questions for us to know so that we can then invest appropriately in our own countermeasures as well as our own surveillance uh, abilities. So there are a lot of Republicans that we've talked to since last week who say very strongly that the Biden administration should not have allowed the balloon to travel all the way across the country from Montana and Idaho down through Kansas City, Missouri, and, and on to the Carolinas, that they should have shot it down way sooner over the Pacific, over Alaska. What's your response? I think they should ask the Biden administration and the military leaders why they recommended this course of action. I think they're jumping to conclusions. You know, you have to defer to the military leaders who have the best information about uh, what's going on with that balloon. Just as an example, you know, over the Aleutian Islands, they, the balloon could have been shot down. It would have been shot down over waters that are almost two miles deep, Jake. Uh, and these are rough waters. So recovering that payload would have been very, very difficult. Whereas obviously now it's um, in waters that are 47 feet deep off South Carolina, which is much easier to recover. So though, that's the type of information where I would just respectfully submit to my Republican colleagues, wait, get the facts, and then uh, make your conclusions after you hear from the military leaders. Not to mention the more than 8,000 people that live on the Aleutian Islands. Um, does this incident hurt your efforts to work in a bipartisan way with the chairman of the committee, Mike Gallagher, and, and other Republicans? I don't think so. Um, I think that we have to uh, refocus and just make sure that uh, we uncover the facts, uh, we lay them out for all of our committee members and the American people, and then we take steps to deal with those facts, with those challenges and threats. If we do that, I think that we will be true to our mission but we can't engage in speculation or rhetoric that would be um, counterproductive. All right, Congressman uh, Raja Krishnamoorthy from Illinois, thank you so much. Good to see you. Coming thank up you, next, Jake. Republican Senator Mitt Romney dishes on what he said in that frosty exchange last night with conman Congressman George Santos. Stay with us. I didn't expect that he'd be standing there trying to shake hands with every senator in the president of the United States. It's, uh, given, given the fact that he's under ethics investigation, he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet. He shouldn't be in Congress, and uh, they're going to go through the process and hopefully get him out. And, uh, but he shouldn't be there, and, and uh, if he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. Well, that's the key, that's the key phrase. If he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there, because uh, Congressman George Santos, utterly without shame by all, Facts and appearances. Senator Mitt Romney there joining a growing list of Republicans fed up uh, with the distraction and the lies and the daily scandals from Santos. Romney saying he told Santos, quote, you don't belong here during a brief exchange at last night's State of the Union. Santos responded to Romney earlier today. 
I mean, I think it's reprehensible that the senator would say such a thing to me in the demeaning way he said. It wasn't very Mormon of him. That's what I can tell you. He told you that you didn't belong. Is that what he said? And he called me along other stuff and used other derogatory language. Yes, he did. And now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is adding to the war uh, of words after Romney said he was disappointed that McCarthy had not asked Santos to resign. McCarthy told CNN a short while ago that Romney should instead call on Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell to resign. Let's discuss. Uh, Casey, let me start with you. So Santos claims Romney used derogatory language toward him. I believe the word he's referring to is ass. He called him an ass. Um, That's what Santos claims. Yes, that's what Santos... Or had claimed to reporters on the Hill after. That's not really a curse, though, right? Maybe he meant it as a donkey. I mean, you covered Romney when he (laughs) ran for president. What do you make of this all? Yes. Um, Well, first of all, um, I'm not LDS, so I don't feel I can speak the way Santos did in terms of what is and isn't Mormon. Well, um, neither is George Santos, but, unless he's a, one no, of the Latter-day well, Saints. who knows? I mean, who knows? <laughs> if, perhaps he is one of the Latter-day Saints. I, I, I don't... Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm unclear on that part. But the reality is, if anything, um, you know, it is actually, in fact, very much in keeping with Mitt Romney's faith and belief in character uh, that he would go up to George Santos and say something like this to him on the floor. Now, he, Santos is using the word derogatory for the language that Romney used. He didn't say profane. He hasn't repeated the word that you just said on air that I'm sorry, I'm not going to say on the air because I don't want it on YouTube uh, forever in my mouth. But thank you. I, um, I'm saying like, I think he means it as a donkey. Like, I don't I think you can call somebody an I mean, ass. Maybe it's, a, it's it, who knows? It's donkile. I, look, I think any of us who've known Romney for a long time. Yeah, um, <laughs> profanity is not like, you know, his thing so much. So if he was saying that in front of all of his colleagues on the floor, I'd be surprised. Um, honestly, I believe Mitt Romney over George Santos just because the record seems to show that he's <laughs> sure. a more reliable narrator. Sure. So, and, and, and Zolan, uh, McCarthy's response mm-hmm. to uh, Romney's mild criticism that he's mm-hmm. disappointed that uh, McCarthy hasn't called on Santos to resign is to go after Romney for not criticizing Eric Swalwell and calling on him to resign. Can you, uh, if you were to go back 24 hours before the State of the Union, uh, just imagine what McCarthy was envisioning for day after messaging. This is probably the last thing. All of this tit for tat, his own members of his party fighting with each other, making these accusations against each other. You know, Kevin McCarthy, he's been trying to focus, at least he says, the messaging of his party uh, on the Biden administration, on trying to have this debate between big spending and whether or not uh, uh, whether or not these packages are are uh, fueling uh, 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 rising prices. None of the attention goes there when your own party is in disarray like this. This this can't be what he wanted. It's probably the last thing that he wanted today. And, you know, the attempt to flip it on Romney or talk about Eric Swalwell or just try to point it to the Democratic Party seems like just an attempt to try and refocus the criticism elsewhere. But I don't know if that's working. But, and, and Kristen, that's I mean, that's the point of people, I think, who are calling for Santos to resign is that he's a distraction because he's constantly there, constantly a spectacle, utterly shameless. Uh, take a listen to what Congressman Nick uh, Lalota told CNN today about his fellow New York Republican. He's a sociopath, George Santos. He looks for that attention. Even the negative attention drives him. It's become an embarrassment and a distraction to the Republicans in the House. And every time I have to come to something like this and talk about George Santos, I can't talk about what Republicans ought to be doing instead. 
I mean, he's not wrong. There you go. Well, I think the point that that you just made about it being a distraction from the messaging is 100% right. I mean, it is interesting to wonder, what would we be talking about him today in an alternate universe where the cameras hadn't captured that one exact moment where Mm. people were able to lip read and figure out what the exchange was between Santos and... Spicy mitt, uh, but but uh, you know we. <laughs> One of my he's, favorite dishes. He, he's he's a di- he's a distraction, but also let's not forget the the bigger issue is the ethics violations, yeah. the campaign finance stuff, the money side. That's what's going to keep this going. Not weird insults and schoolyard fights and 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 high school drama. It's going to be law enforcement that is going to keep this going until he steps down. Absolutely. And and the other thing, though, is I would say even if it weren't for Santos v. Mitt, Santos v. Romney, um, (laughs) there, you know, Kevin McCarthy had hoped for an on-message Republican Party, and yet some of the members of his party who had made McCarthy's life so tough a month ago during his leadership uh, election Mm -hmm. uh, were literally heckling Joe Biden, President Biden, um, uh, including uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Uh, she w- is defiant today about her booing, saying that uh, Biden was a liar about something that he actually, what he said was accurate. Actually true. Was actually facts. accurate. Yeah. So he- here's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Taylor Greene. I got so many messages from people in my district and people across the country. It was like I won my election again. He got exactly what he deserved, and I am not sorry one bit. And I don't think Speaker McCarthy is upset with any of us for for expressing our views and being unwilling to allow the president to lie. Again, the, the fact is that Romney, I mean, sorry, President Biden said very specifically it's a, a minority of Republicans, yep. not a majority, like emphasized. Yep. But he said, has talked about sunsetting Medicare and Social Security. Mm-hmm. And Senator Rick Scott has talked about sunsetting every federal program, which ergo right. includes Medicare and Social Security, not to mention other members who have talked about this. Right. I mean, CNN did a fact check actually on this. Yeah, look, bottom line, Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene and the rest of the GOP caucus got schooled by Joe Biden last night. I mean, that was literally a master class, the way he ended up getting everybody to agree, okay, so Social Security and Medicare, off the table. He also, I have to tell you, I mean, who expected that the State of the Union would be so entertaining? I guess we should expect that from now on, given what we know about, you know, this Congress. But he also, he was having fun with it, and he was in more better control of that room than Kevin McCarthy has been. Yes. Of his own, of the, of his own members. I mean, McCarthy's sitting well, there shushing, and... Biden's like, let's bring it on. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, part of, we're talking about George Santos, that was, that means we haven't been talking about Kevin McCarthy trying to get his, right. the members of his conference to right. shut up, basically, right. which is not something I remember seeing. But, I mean, big picture, Jake, I will say, you know, I was in the room in 2009 when Joe Wilson yelled, you lie, I was covering Congress, and you would have thought that the world had broken, right? When well, that he was occurred. censured, though, right? Right, I mean, yes. he was censured. Yes. I mean, but, but I mean, like, going down to the speaker's lobby after the speech, everyone was appalled. I mean, obviously, there were, very, there were a lot of layers to it. He was the country's first black president. This was a Southern, uh, you know, somewhat breaking decorum, Southern white man. Um, but to go from that, and the, the rea- I remember how visceral the reaction was to that and how horrible it seemed at the time and the way people treated it, and everyone was appalled, to the times that we are now, however many, 15 years later... And to have Marjorie Taylor Greene stand up there, yell liar, and to basically, you know, get on TV with a defense yep. of that and say, you know, look, I, 
She basically did what she came to do. And everyone's basically shrugging their shoulders. I mean, that is the difference. That is how our politics have changed in the last 15 years. But think about it. We learned about the incentives. When that ULI moment happened, I remember this was the beginning of the internet fundraising days. And that was a big fundraising moment for Joe Wilson. Then that's not to say that it was a good thing, but it's just suddenly that awakens a lot of people to a new incentive structure in our politics that takes you from that moment to optics of Nancy Pelosi tears up the speech, Republicans yelling back at Biden, that it becomes more of a circus because there's now an incentive to do things that are more outrageously but we, but uh, in now terms of the it is a circus. I mean, look, we saw a 15-round circus, right? And, like, go, you know, Mitt Romney. He's exactly right. I mean, this is the clown car and again, we're talking about George Santos. We're talking about, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene yelling she, and others heckling. That is not the decorum. That is not the speakership but, that McCarthy thought he was getting into. To be clear, the engagement, though, by Biden and the result of this is also somewhat intentional. Um, White House officials today and aides that have been really working on the strategy moving forward as we get to maybe a likely potential reelection announcement have been saying a main part of the strategy is drawing a contrast between the economic policies of the White House. And for a while, they were looking for a foe there. Yeah. And they found it with uh, some of the proposals coming from Republicans. Well, and, and him engaging yesterday and also the heckling put a spotlight on some of those proposals. The White House was throwing an effort it. to show, bring it on. He is ready for the fight. Mm-hmm. It's, it was not just about the substance. Mm-hmm. It was very clear that stylistically yes. mm-hmm. he wanted to send a message I'm you ready. Know, I'm ready to I'm fight ready. with these people. And, you know, the, the thing, too, is Kevin McCarthy was not trying to shush people out of, you know, some sort of civic sense of civic duty. Right. I mean, he had a he political bad. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That like this is not how we should behave. And this kind of behavior has actually lost us general elections, meant that we didn't do as well in the yeah, midterms. It's just flying as we monkeys. Thought, They're wild. Right. Yeah. And so he knows that. Um, and for the White House to be able to get, you know, put that on display is absolutely yeah, a political win. I, I think Joe Biden loving this exchange that wound up unfolding as far removed from normal decorum as it is, is because think about, in my view, the number one audience for him last night was nervous Democrats. Absolutely. who were worried that yeah. he's plan 100%. A, plan B and plan C That's for their 2024 hopes. And honestly, that first 30 minutes of the speech, I thought it was touching. That's up. a big yeah. binder they've got left. If I was a Democratic <laughs> voter, I do not know how I'd be feeling about this. And that was the moment that turned it all Absolutely. around. Absolutely. The big fear about him is that he seems weak. He seems old. He seems fragile. He seems not up to it. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene sent him, a, sent him an in-kind contribution from, yeah. the, uh, from the back row. Thanks one and all. Appreciate it. Coming Thanks, up Jake. next, how one of the police officers charged in Tyree Nichols' death claims he tried to help the 29-year-old before he was brutally beaten. Stay with us. International lead now CNN has obtained an affidavit showing how one former Memphis police officer is trying to defend his actions on the night Tyree Nichols was brutally beaten. Justin Smith claims that he called for medical help for Nichols, followed his training, and even tried to help Nichols at one point. CNN's Nick Valencia is in Memphis, Tennessee. Nick, does former officer Smith's account line up with other evidence? The short answer, Jake, is no. It does, though, represent the first account that has emerged of what one of the officers involved in Tyree Nichols' death has told investigators. And as you mentioned, Smith says that he actually tried to help Nichols, that he called for medical help prior to arriving on the scene because he had heard reports of pepper spray used, uh, and uh, he wanted medical help to be there on the scene. This affidavit, though, ultimately goes on to say that he was fired for unnecessary use of force and failing to provide aid to Tyree Nichols despite being a certified EMT. 
key. Look, this new batch of documents that we obtained has all sorts of revelations and shows the lengths that officers involved in Nichols' death went to cover up their actions by either hiding their body cameras or trying to obscure them, laughing about what they did to Nichols after the fact, and misleading investigators with contradictory statements. Jake. Tyree Nichols' mother and stepfather, who attended President Biden's State of the Union address last night in Washington, D.C., uh, spoke with CNN's Don Lemon earlier today. What did they have to say? Well, it's really interesting because they have been adamant about the passage of the legislation of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And when we were at the, pre- the uh, city council meeting yesterday, it's one of the reforms that was passed by the city council to officially support that legislation. Uh, listen to what they had to say this morning about why they believe that legislation is so important. If they had passed the George Floyd bill initially, my son may not have died tragically the way he did. If they don't do anything... Um, the government, then they're showing me they have no humanity and that they're not for the people because I am part of the people. So you need to get off your butts and get this bill passed. We can't have another Tyree. The fallout over Nichols' death continues here. As we reported, seven more officers are expected to face disciplinary actions from the Memphis Police Department, bringing the total to at least 13 officers involved, either having faced or will have faced discipline uh, for their actions. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Memphis, Tennessee, thank you so much. Just days before the Super Bowl, the NFL commissioner is sharing a strong opinion about Philadelphia Eagles fans. We do have some fantastic news in our sports lead. An NFL Players Union doctor is guaranteeing that Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin will, will be able to play professional football game. As you might remember, the Buffalo Bills safety had been sidelined since that shocking collapse on the field last month. He went into cardiac arrest, meaning his heart abruptly stopped beating. But today Hamlin is accepting an award for his service to his community, showing his remarkable recovery. CNN's Coy Water is live in Phoenix, the site of Sunday's Super Bowl between the amazing, beautiful Philadelphia Eagles and some other team. Uh, Coy, what did Hamlin have to say? That other team, those Kansas City Chiefs, third Super Bowl in four years. Lead, I remind you, Jake. Look, Damar Hamlin, incredible. He got up there and he thanked his dad who was there on stage with him because he said it was his dad who was always giving back, uh, uplifting their community, and he instilled those values in him. And so Damar Hamlin says, you know, that that $9 million that fans rallied to raise for his foundation, he's not going to take that for granted. He says now it's his turn to make an impact. Here he is. One of my favorite quotes, it's a blessing to be a blessing. Um, with that being said, I plan to never take this position for granted and always have an urgent approach in making a, a difference in the community where I come from and also communities across the world. It was surreal, Jake. A surprise appearance at that NFL Players Association press conference. Uh, when he walked out onto the stage, uh, people stood up and cheered. It's so uplifting, encouraging sight after suffering that cardiac arrest on the field just over a month ago. Just incredible. Uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell was asked today why the number of concussions is up this season. Uh, what did he have to say? Mm. Yeah, an up. Uh, 18% um, from last season in concussions, um, most notably in kickoffs. Goodell uh, says that the number may have gone up because of uh, evaluations. Uh, those four potential concussions 
went up as well by 17 percent. So um, they, they changed the definition of what a concussion is this season. Uh, so now, Jacob, they, they feel that that's a large part of the reason. And they still hope to have uh, better helmets in the future and more rule changes uh, to prevent head to head contact as much as possible. And uh, I hear Mr. Goodell said something uh, about one of the greatest groups of Americans uh, known to this country, uh, Eagles fans. What did he have to say? <laughs> yeah, he, he had nothing but great words to say about those kind and courteous Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, but the commissioner may not feel quite the same about uh, the Eagles, uh, who are, you know, they maybe more of a villain in his eye. He was asked how he feels when he is booed by fans. Here was his answer. I actually love it personally because, you know, it's a way for fans to interact. Um, it's, a, it's a way for them to be part of it. Philadelphia fans are pretty good at booing, let me just tell you. Jake, I'm from Pennsylvania. I love our home state and Philadelphia, but I'll just say this. My parents didn't miss games during my nine-year NFL career, but there were two places where they refused to wear my jersey out of fear of getting dumped with beer or worse, Jake, and one of them was your beloved Philadelphia. Well, all I'll say to Mr. Goodell is sometimes we have things to boo about. And uh, I think he knows what I'm talking about. Coy, <laughs> Coy Wire in Phoenix, thanks so much. Appreciate it. From one great assignment to another, the NBA has a new points king. LeBron James, a shot in history. And there it is! LeBron stands alone! Los Angeles Lakers' LeBron James with the fadeaway jumper to officially seal his name as the league's all-time leading scorer, topping Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's nearly 40-year-old Record. LeBron now leads with 38,390 points, a number that's only going to keep growing the longer the 38-year-old 30 keeps playing. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in L.A., somehow wrangled this assignment, was there to witness last night's historic moment. Omar, tough gig. Uh, the Lakers, uh, we should point out, lost the game to the Oklahoma City Thunder, but, but tell us what it was like to be there. Yeah, I mean, look, we haven't slept much at this point, so I'm really trying to convince myself that I wasn't dreaming when we watched this. As the countdown got closer to the record being broken, there was a countdown clock up on the scoreboard. When it was two points away, everybody was on their feet, phones out, and with a fade from the left elbow and a flick of the wrist, it was the history that everybody was there to see. Now, many people, including LeBron, thought this record would never be broken. So when he was finally announced as the NBA's all-time leading scorer, you, you saw the emotion well up in him immediately. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, again, whose record uh, LeBron broke, wrote after the game that, in part, this is the magic of sports, to see something seemingly impossible, reminding us that if one person can do it, that we all somehow share in that achievement. It's what sends children onto playgrounds to duplicate a LeBron layup or a Steph Curry three-pointer or Mia Hamm, inspiring a whole generation of girls to come off the bleachers and onto the field. And when we talk about magic, LeBron scored 38 points to break this record. That got him to 38,388 points when he broke it. It's been 38 years since the previous record. He did it last night, the 38th day of the year, and LeBron James, 38 years old. So yesterday would have been the day to bet on 38. Just to, just to point this out, the last time this happened, when Kareem took it away from Chamberlain, you were nine years away from being born, Omar. Um, LeBron is uh, roughly halfway through his 20th season on the subject of age. How long can we expect the King to keep playing? Because when Kareem reached this, he was older than LeBron is right now. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, LeBron at this point says he feels good. He he hopes to play for another few seasons, and he's got a lot to play for. He still feels like he can bring himself some championships to run up this points total to the point where it truly might be unbreakable and a very important factor that his oldest son is close to playing in college basketball, potentially the NBA, so they could play together in the future. All right, Omar Jimenez in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. It's all two hours just sitting there like a big pineapple. Our coverage continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room after this short break. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.